Please have a seat. If you have your Bibles handy, I would invite you to turn with me to the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Find ourselves this morning in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let's give our attention now to the holy and inerrant word of God. Chapter 2, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Of God the Father. Let's come now before our God in prayer, asking for His help. Merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have given to your people your word. We do indeed understand that as we come into this place, we, we all carry with us um, different struggles, and we come from different places this morning. Uh, there's some who woke up this morning and, and came to this place anxious to be with your people again, having missed last Sunday, anxious to hear you speak. There are others this morning that are facing difficulties in, in their lives and in the lives of their, their families and come this morning looking for just a word or a sentence, something that would help them make it through the next week. Still, there are those that come this morning and really skeptical, um, doubting and wondering if the gospel is really true at all. Could it be, could it be this true that all our sins are forgiven in Jesus and that we have been brought into his family? Still, there are others that come with, with great anxiety about the future wondering what will be. Father, however we come this morning, it's our prayer that you would be at work among us, that even this morning as we hear your word proclaimed, that we would learn that we are far, far more sinful 
than we have ever given ourselves credit for. We don't begin to understand the depths of our sin. And yet, as we pray that you would reveal that to us, we also ask this morning that as we hear your word proclaimed, you would reveal to us this morning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remind us that though we are far more sinful than we could have ever imagined about ourselves, that we are also far more loved, far more cared for, far more secure, far more accepted than we could have ever dreamed because of what you have done for us through Jesus. We pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning, that you would cause us to be doers of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In the uh, early 1990s, um, a a TV show came out that I I really think uh, eventually changed uh, a lot of TV. Uh, And that show that I'm thinking of uh, was on MTV, and it was uh, MTV's The Real World. And the reason I think it changed TV is because, in my opinion, it was the first reality show. And uh, and now you turn on your TV, and uh, it seems like you just cannot. That reality shows are everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Um, you know, The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, American Idol, uh, cooking reality shows, Dancing with the Stars. I caught a bit of a Celebrity Apprentice last night. Um, but, uh, you know, that's just to mention a few. And, you know, obviously we can argue about how real these shows really are. But, you know, I think the reality that people are wanting to see in these shows really has to do with seeing what people are really like. Um, you know, sitcoms used to be big business, right? Uh, you know, you tune in for a half an hour, but people eventually, I think, got bored with this unreal family that somehow magically solved all their problems in just a half an hour. Why can't our family be like that, right? Um, And people got bored with it. And and so these reality shows came along, and they took these ordinary people, and they placed them in these very, very extreme situations so that you could begin to see what made them tick, what people were really like. You know, you throw them into a hostile boardroom on Celebrity Apprentice or whatever, or you uh, put them on an island somewhere where they have to vote people off, and you begin to see what people are really like, you know, how they'll stab each other in the back to get ahead, and how they, you know, certain people crack under the pressure, and how they're motivated by the supreme lust for power and prestige and wealth and all these kinds of things. Well, this passage in Philippians It's incredible. It is full of deep and rich theology. It's a a passage that's about Jesus. Um, In fact, most people think that Paul here is quoting from a hymn in the early church. And oftentimes they call it Christ's hymn. But the thing that ought to grab your attention right from the start is that Paul is taking you into the mind of Christ. He's saying this is Jesus' attitude. Um, In other words, this... This passage is showing us what motivated Jesus. You're shown in this passage who Jesus really is. You get to see why Jesus did the things he did. 
But unlike reality TV, Paul doesn't have you tuning in here for your entertainment, right? He doesn't take you into the mind of Christ so that you can sit back and say, oh, well, isn't that interesting? This is what Jesus is like. He takes you into the mind of Christ and he shows you Jesus' motives and his character to change you. Listen again to verse 5. This is why he puts this hymn in here. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. He's saying his mind should change your mind. Here is Jesus' attitude. Here is the mind of Christ. And understanding this should leave you changed. And so here's what I want us to see in this passage this morning. I want us to see Jesus' attitude, and then I want us to see Jesus' glory in this passage. It's in verses 6 through 8 that you really see Jesus' attitude, and that's our first point. You know, it's one thing to summarize a picture, um, and it's another thing, I think, to see a picture. I mean, you could say, I have a beautiful picture of a sunset in my house. Um, And it's another thing to simply gaze upon the beauty of that picture. You you know, I mean, mean to, to see it, to see the way the colors contrast and complement one another, the way the lines are defined and undefined, you know, the way it represents reality to us and really draws us into it. Uh, You know, we could probably summarize all of this to say Jesus' attitude was humility. And, And I think Paul could have said that, but he doesn't say it like that. What he does in this passage is he paints a picture for you. He wants you to see the beauty of that humility He wants to draw you into this picture, to draw me into this picture. He wants us to see Jesus' humility by understanding who he is, by understanding what he becomes and what he does. So so who is Jesus? In verse 6, Paul writes, who being in very nature God. Jesus is fully God. His nature is God. His essence is divine. What God is, Jesus is. He's not a creature like you and me. He's God. The Lord Jesus Christ existed before the world existed. You know, I've come to believe that one of the joys of <clears throat> parenthood is, is blowing categories in my children's minds uh, and, and watching the wheels turn. You know, um, just the other day, my, my daughter Kennedy and I were sitting on the couch and we're talking about Jesus dying and being resurrected. And Kennedy asked me, you know, how did he come to life after he was dead? And I said, Jesus came back to life because Jesus is bigger than death. Isn't that cool? In silence, you know, crickets. You just see the wheels turning like, I don't understand what that means. Um, Hopefully one day she will. One day my kids will probably ask me, who made Jesus? I mean, because really, in their world, I mean, we, we walk around and we say, you know, the stars, Jesus made the stars. You know, look look at the tree. God made those trees. God made you. And, you know, so I, I expect that at one point, so my children are going to ask me, well, well, who made Jesus? And I'll have the opportunity at that point just to say, no one. Color daddy a nice picture at school. You know, just leave it at the... Jesus is fully... God. I mean, the first line of this hymn really sets the stage for what is intended 
to be astounding and amazing to you and me. See, we're almost so familiar with this story. Jesus was born in a manger, lived and died, that we don't pause long enough to understand what Paul is saying. No one made Jesus. He is God. And the picture painted for you here is God's humility. The humility of God himself. So these other statements that Paul makes are simply giving color to this picture. The one who humbles himself has existed in complete perfection from eternity past to eternity future, and he holds all things together. This is what God is like, Paul is saying. He's God, but he goes on to say, but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he didn't cling to his rights as God. He had a right to enjoy his own uninterrupted glory forever. But he didn't grasp or hold on to that right. Instead of holding on to his right, we're told that he made himself nothing. How is it that Jesus, being fully God, would make himself nothing? Jesus made himself nothing, and the next phrase that Paul uses tells you how he did it. He made himself nothing by addition. He emptied himself by taking the role of a servant and being made a man. He never stops being God. He is fully God and he is fully man. He empties himself by addition. I once heard it said this way that Jesus had a greater priority than his own uninterrupted glory. His greater priority was seeking sinners. I mean, the author of Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy set before him. That he became a servant, endured the cross, scorned its shame. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but, but listen, what was the joy that was set before Jesus that would cause him to take on flesh and die? The Bible says it was you. That was the joy set before him to rescue a broken Rebellious creation. Rounding off this picture that Paul is painting, you see Jesus' humility in what he does. He serves and becomes obedient to the point of dying on a cross in verse 8. And I hope you see what Paul is saying as he explains this and points you to the gospel. This is Jesus, this is God, and this is his attitude. He didn't hold on to his rights, but he took on flesh and came into this world to live and die. And Paul says, this is your God, this is what he's like even when it meant death on a cross. And you know the story, right? I mean, he didn't suffer for his crimes. He didn't suffer uh, and die for his penalties. He's willing to suffer and die for your crimes and for mine. A servant beaten and brutalized beyond recognition for you. That ugly gross and shameful place of execution, the cross. Paul is saying that ugly place becomes beautiful because on it, God took on flesh and God died. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Paul is saying this picture, this view of Jesus' humility is really supposed to change you. Your attitude should be the same as his. His mind should change your mind. Let me ask you a question. What does Jesus want from you? He wants humility. 
That is what Jesus wants from you. He's calling you and me away from a fascination with ourselves and with our own agendas into extreme humility. Okay, fine. So, so go, go be humble. It, l- listen, with, without the gospel, it isn't just difficult and hard. Without the gospel to say, go be humble, it, it is impossible. See, because I've tried this, I know. Without the gospel, you try and be humble and you wind up proud of your humility. You only get humility when you look away from yourself and at Jesus. See, only here in this picture will we ever be free to lose ourselves, to lay down our lives. Only in the gospel can you get free from asking and being afraid, what will happen to, to me or what will happen to my reputation if I, I, I lose my life and I'm this kind of humble? I mean, who's going to look out for me? Look, the only way to find life, Jesus says, is to lose it. We're almost to the second point, but Jesus didn't find his name by holding on to it. He found it by losing it. There's this video that was on ESPN, was circulated on the, uh, uh, on the internet for, and it's been a couple of years, and you, a number of you have probably seen it, but um, it's about a man named Mr. Hoyt who, who has this son, Rick, who saved his life. How did Rick save his dad's life? Um, when Rick was born, um, he was strangled by the umbilical cord, and it left him brain damaged, unable to control his limbs and his body. He's confined to this wheelchair, and he can only communicate with his father by tapping his head on a computer screen or up against a sensor that puts words onto a computer screen. His parents were told by the doctors to put him in an institution when he was just nine months old and be done with him. So how did Rick save his dad's life? Rick asked his father to push him in a charity run for somebody else who was paralyzed. Rick's father was out of shape and had never run more than a mile in his life, he said, up until this point. And they finished the five-mile race. And Rick typed this message to his dad. He said, Dad, when we were running, I felt like I wasn't disabled. So how did Rick save his dad's life? You see, this this out-of-shape father is now 60-something. And his son is now 40-something. Rick's father has pushed him in 24 Boston marathons. He's towed his son in a boat, ran with his son, and rode with his son on on a bike in 212 triathlons, including four Ironmans. In case you didn't know, an Ironman is a 2.4-mile swim. And it's not just this guy. He's towing his son, a full-grown man. A 26.2-mile run, a 112-mile bike ride. You know, they finished the Boston Marathon a few years ago. And um, they were only 35 minutes off of the world record. So someone came to Mr. Hoyt. And they, and they said, why don't you try and run it by yourself? I mean, you're pushing a full-grown man. 
Why don't you you break the record by yourself? And his response was this. He said, no way. And he went on to say that he does it purely for the feeling he gets from seeing his son smile as they run. So here's my question. How did Rick save his dad's life? Mr. Hoyt found his life only when he lost it for his son. You see, don't you see he could care less about breaking the records or doing something for himself because he found his life only when he lost it for his son. So I ask you again, what does Jesus want from you? He wants humility. He wants you to find your life in this picture of Jesus so that you can lose your life for others. You see, this, is, I think, is really why Paul doesn't just say, be humble. You can't be humble like this until you see that Jesus was humble like this for you. Look, he didn't give up his glory. He didn't take on flesh. He didn't die to get something. He didn't die to get love. He had that in the Trinity for all eternity. He's God. He did it to give love. See, only when you, only when you and I get that can we stop trying to get love from everyone in our lives. You see, all the, all the many manipulations we have so mastered in our lives to try and get love, you know, doing things for others, saying things for others. We even pretend to love just so that we can somehow get love in return. But this picture of Jesus is held up in front of us to say, look how you are loved by God himself. I mean, look what he let go of for you. Look what he did for you. Look at his humility on your behalf. And in that, you can finally stop trying to get love and give it. Because you already have it in Jesus. Lost in this picture of Jesus' humility is the only place you can get free to be humble like him. Well, the attitude of Jesus' humility um, is there, but the story doesn't end there because the next verses tell us about his glory. You know, I had a pastor who used to always say when we came to the word therefore in the Bible, he would say, when you get to the word therefore, you're supposed to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And uh, I used to just get annoyed by that. But, uh, but he's right. It's, it's there for a purpose. Because in our passage, it's telling us that because Jesus humbled himself, his Father lifts him up. As a result of his humility, he's now glorified. Verse 9 tells us this, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Now I want you to see here, I think this is important for us to understand here. Okay, the resurrection isn't mentioned here. It goes straight from Jesus' death to his being lifted up by the Father to the highest place. No stone rolled away, no appearances to his disciples, nothing like that. It's from the cross to the right hand of his Father's glory. You know, when you read throughout the New Testament and you read about Jesus' resurrection, the writers are most often putting that there so that you will understand that Jesus lives forever. But when you read in the New Testament about Jesus being lifted up by his Father to glory, it's done for another purpose. It's to emphasize to you and me that Jesus reigns as King. 
So if you're following this, Paul clearly wants you to see that Jesus is king. His humility leads to his glory. Now, if you understand that verses 9 through that verses 9 through 11 are all about Jesus' glory and his reign as king, you'll understand the name that's given to him. Verse 9, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The only question that we have when, when we come to that, that verse is, well, what's the name? Is it Jesus? What is the name that he gives him? The name that God gives Jesus is Lord. Isaiah chapter 45, By myself, God says, I have sworn my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. It is to Jesus as Lord that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Now listen, here comes what I've said to you a number of times already as we've been looking at Philippians. Here comes the upside down nature of God's kingdom again. The way down is the way up. He gave up his life and he was lifted up as king. Listen, as you read through the Bible, you will see that the only way you can respond to Jesus is extremely. What I mean, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Jesus, as you read through the Gospels, Jesus didn't ever preach any sermons where people just kind of smiled at him and shook his hand and said, good sermon, preacher. That, That didn't happen in the Gospels. What happened was you either wanted to kill him or you fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Why is it that these are the only responses to Jesus? Why is it that these responses have to be so extreme? It is because he is king. And you are either going to war against the king or you are following the king. You cannot be on the fence when it comes to this king, Jesus. And Paul is saying here in this passage, he's saying this, rest assured, this king wins in the end. You know, there is probably nothing more timely for us to to really talk about than to be talking about the fact that Jesus is king. Uh, These are uncertain times that that we live in. We, We understand that. And each day seems to bring about more uncertainties about what's going to happen tomorrow. And I think we've probably all felt the pull to some degree or another, the pull in your heart that says, You better grab on to something that you can control. You know, become your own king, in in a sense, is what your heart is saying. You know, look out for yourself. Do it your way so that you can be secure, so that you can have some control in these uncertain times. And I think it probably sounds familiar to you because it has been echoing throughout time ever since Adam and Eve were in the garden. And they wanted to be their own kings. And they wanted to do it their way. And it sounds so freeing to us. And it is a depressing, life-choking slavery to yourself to live like that. Paul is saying, you are made to live under the reign of King Jesus. And Paul is saying, that's the only place you can be free. See, he's saying, bow now or be forced to bow then. But everyone bows before the triumphant king. 
This humble, obedient servant is the king. His sacrifice and his death and his loss were not in vain. He is the triumphant king, the cha- our champion of salvation for sinners. You know, it's been a while since I read um, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings books. Um, but you familiar with the story, the movies came out, made it more popular. But um, in that story, you know, there's this hobbit named Frodo. And Frodo has to travel to Mount Doom. And he's got to throw this ring into the fires of Mount Doom and destroy it. And so the whole book, you're following all of his journeys and adventures that he has along the way. And interestingly enough, as you read through the books, the one who helps him the most is a man named Aragorn, okay? If you read the books, you really the movie's kind of cheap, but if you read the books, you don't know who Aragorn is until the very end of the story when it's revealed that he is the king. He never dressed like a king, and he was always serving Frodo. Does that sound familiar? So here's this story of Frodo traveling to Mount Doom to destroy this evil ring, and you're tempted... You're tempted to think that that's the climax of the story. The ring has been destroyed. This long journey is ended. But it isn't the climax at all of those thousand pages or whatever it is. The climax of the story is when Aragorn, the servant king, takes his seat on the throne. Listen to this passage from the Lord of the Rings. And so they stood on the walls of the city of Gondor, and a great wind rose and blew, and their hair, raven and golden, streamed out, mingling in the air, and the shadow departed. And the sun was unveiled, and light leapt forth, and the waters of Anduin shone like silver, and in all the houses of the city men sang for the joy that welled up in their hearts from what source they could not tell. And before the sun had fallen far from the noon, out of the east, there came a great eagle flying, and he bore tidings beyond hope. From the lords of the west, crying, Sing now, ye people of the Tower of Anor, for the realm of Sauron is ended forever. And the dark tower is thrown down. Sing and rejoice, ye people of the Tower of Guard, for your watch hath not been in vain, and the black gate is broken, and your king hath passed through, and he is victorious. Sing and be glad, all ye children of the West, for your king shall come again, and he shall dwell among you all the days of your life. Do you know what the exaltation of Jesus means? It means this, the shadow has departed. And the dark tower is thrown down. And the black gate is broken. Jesus being lifted to glory means that your king has passed through death itself. Through death itself. And he is victorious. I mean, these are the tidings of hope. We serve a king who is victorious. You see, if you really want to radically change the way you live and the way you approach life, you have to spend time dwelling on the fact that Jesus is the victorious servant king. He didn't conquer with a sword, but with a cross. He found his name by losing his name. It will shape the way you see your life. It'll shape the way you see your struggles. It will cause you to sing and be glad. It will bring forth both 
a seriousness and a comfort to your life that cannot be had any other way than by having Jesus as king. See, the picture that Paul paints is supposed to look like it was painted upside down and backwards. But this is the picture that changed all of history. The way down is the way up, and the only way to find your life is by losing it. Glory comes through loss. What does God want from his people? He wants a people who see themselves in this upside down and backwards picture. His mind should change your mind. And the only way to find your life is by losing it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful that Jesus passed through death itself and is victorious. To know that the realm of Satan is ended. That our king, in the, in the end, he, he wins this victory. He wins this war against sin and death. Father, I pray for all of us this morning that you would give us eyes that can look at this glorious picture of the gospel of God who humbled himself and took on flesh and became obedient to the point of death and how he found his name only by losing it. Father, I pray that we would see that picture and it would shape us. That we would become a people that see life this way, upside down and backwards from how we normally think of it. Father, make us into people who are humble, humbled by the fact that God took on flesh and died in our place. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.